the rich got much richer in 2020. Nine million fewer people are employed than a year ago. Tens of thousands of small businesses have closed or will soon. State and local governments are planning deep cuts. What is needed now is a massive movement of the working class and poor to fight back. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's December 22nd, 2020. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Brian, where do you want to start today? Well, I want to start, of course, and our focus should be to to understand what the so-called stimulus package actually means for the different classes, the different strata in society. What does it mean, especially for the working class and poor? Uh, People who are suffering massive unemployment, wage cutting, uh, people who are facing families that are facing eviction, people who have lost their health care. We want to look at this program, this stimulus package that has been adopted now by both houses of Congress. Uh, We want to look at it and and talk about what it means for them, what it also means for the corporations and the banks. Of course, the airlines industry got another $15 billion. We have the the three martini lunch uh, paid for by we, the taxpayers. That's back in the package. We want to talk about all of that. But Esther, before we do, we must make mention of, of what's happening with COVID. I mean, here you have a new a mutation of the virus in the UK such that uh, all of Europe has blocked travel from uh, from people coming from the UK, from Britain. Uh, the United States has not done that. If if this new virus strain had you know, been identified, say, in Africa or in China, certainly travel from there would be blocked, but it's not blocked from the UK into the United States. Thus, we probably already have the new strain, which is uh, important because it's highly transmissible, more transmissible than the earlier strains. We also have a situation where uh, the healthcare crisis, meeting the needs of the COVID uh, nineteen pandemic, are you know healthcare is stretched thin in California. People, our institutions are setting up field hospitals, and we have one point seven million deaths from COVID nineteen worldwide. But 320,000 of those deaths, one out of every five globally, is right here in the United States. Again, we can't say it enough. The government has failed the people. It's not just Trump. It's both ruling class parties. Yeah, Brian. And this $900 billion package that is going to pass Congress is not helping the situation. We have healthcare workers and other 
public workers uh, still being laid off. There's no aid to states and uh, local municipalities in this package. And so you have a contradiction where you have uh, a crisis that is only accelerating, but not the public dollars really addressed to to handle it outside of the the celebration of this new vaccine and but without the the proper monies for the distribution to all the people who need it. So after months of delay, uh, and you remember that Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans refused to even consider a much larger $3.4 trillion package in the spring that would have uh, done a lot more to stimulate the economy. Uh, they've just, they're, they have this much smaller package that's perhaps a mitigation, perhaps a bridge to what progressives hope that Biden will be able to pass a later, a more large, a larger, more comprehensive budget package. And this package is providing these measly $600 checks to adults and a boost, and that's compared to $1,200 in the spring, and a boost of $300 a week compared to $600 a week for unemployment aid to people, uh, to this, you know, growing army of unemployed people. And so some analysts estimate that um, more than 13 million people won't even receive this additional aid. Uh, they slash the week's uh, for unemployment that, that people will be able to receive unemployment. And they've put it, they've worked in all these additional hoops that you, that the unemployed will have to go through in order to get this, uh, this aid. So, uh, but the biggest thing about this package is that states and local governments are not getting anything. And as we've talked about on the show, you know, states and cities have been greatly impacted by plummeting tax revenue, uh, the fact that, you know, businesses have closed, that when people don't have jobs, they're not paying payroll taxes. So all these things have devastated states and cities. And unlike the, the corporate gifts that were given away in the spring, you know, it's as if states and cities are being treat it as if they're not the, the bedrock of the economy and the workers who who work uh, with them are not considered the bedrock of the economy. Walter, let's go over some of the some of the points in the bill. What's there? What's not there? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Esther hit on some of this. I mean, there's the uh, extension of the unemployment benefits or an enhancement to unemployment benefits, but it's only three hundred dollars after the CARES Act was passed in March. The enhancement was six hundred dollars. So so cutting that enhancement in half. Uh, and right, only going for 11 weeks, so into March. Uh, the economy is not going to be recovered in 11 weeks. There's a looming wave of of perhaps tens of millions of foreclosures and evictions um, on the horizon because people simply can't afford rent. This bill uh, allocates some money to rental relief, to renter relief, but not nearly what's needed. And it only extends the federal moratorium on evictions by one month through the end of January. So the, uh, you know, people, people could be kicked out of their homes starting in February. 
Um, the uh, bill also includes, uh, as, as was also mentioned, a, a $15 billion bailout for the airline industry. And of course, action does need to be taken to save the jobs of all the many, many, many thousands of people who are employed in the airline industry. But the way that this is designed makes it um, guarantees that the corporate bosses who are in large part responsible for the very weak state of the airline industry, remain in complete control of the industry despite enjoying the benefits of billions and billions and billions of dollars, $15 billion in this case, of public money. Um, the the bill, um, I mean, I, I think what Esther was talking about in terms of the lack of relief for state budgets, I mean, there are enormous holes in, in state and in city and other municipalities' budgets. Um, and, and what happens after almost every economic crisis is that the powers that be attempt to resolve that crisis, to balance the budget on the backs of poor and working class people, and that means cuts to vital social services like education, healthcare, food stamps, uh, I think could certainly, we could see food stamps on the chopping block uh, at the federal level as a consequence of the ballooning federal deficit and, and similar um, scenarios could be replicated at the state and local level without any significant assistance. Um, so this is something that's, that's wholly inadequate. Yeah, I, I did a little computing and, you know, the last check was $1,200. It was nine months ago. If this $600 check is supposed to last nine months, like the last payment was, this check over nine months is only $66.67. That's nothing. The average monthly food expenditures for the average American household, $680 per month. So $66.67, not even a tenth of the basic food that people need. Not to mention, you know, when we're looking at these you know, some of this unemployment insurance, the bill was passed so late that there's actually a two to three week gap of payments. Um, we're going to see that coming through because people are getting their last paycheck, their last unemployment insurance um, check on the 26th of December in just a couple days, the day after Christmas. Uh, and it's going to take several weeks for some states to process these federal unemployment insurance. So not only are people dealing with costs from the holidays, um, but then also they're going to be completely, you know, out of out of any sort of unemployment insurance. And this is, again, this is something that of that is a very basic thing for democracies to have some sort of safety net for when people lose their jobs. Not to mention that this is, of course, the biggest economic and financial crisis that this country has, and healthcare crisis that this country has ever seen in our lifetimes. I mean, in our in all of our lifetimes, I think, and you know, so many tens of, of millions of people have lost their jobs and then Congress can't even get it together to to make sure that there's extended payments during, especially during the holidays. It's completely unconscionable. Esther, the, uh, the people in this country need health care. They need to have health care for every single person and it needs to be affordable health care. Medicare is not free. I mean, if you're receiving Medicare, you pay a monthly premium. Medicare only pays 80% of your doctors and hospital bills. So everyone who is on Medicare needs a Medicare supplement uh, unless they're getting Medicare Advantage, which is a complete ripoff. But a Medicare supplement is another more than $100 uh, a month. You're looking basically, even with Medicare for All, it's several hundred dollars a month, which is for many, many people, many, many families, 
beyond the reach, but still not free healthcare. It's not socialized medicine. Uh, and here you have in the middle of a pandemic where millions, about eight or nine million families, I think, lost healthcare because they lost their jobs and their their healthcare was associated with their jobs. Those families don't have anything. And more than 50% of all bankruptcies, personal bankruptcies in the United States are associated with unpaid medical bills. I mean, showing the callous and and cruel character of this version of of capitalism, America's version of capitalism. Uh, And here we have the incoming Biden administration. Uh, People have a lot of expectation, but there's a lot of crisis. Under these circumstances, the Biden administration could do something bold, like say, let's go forward for a Medicare for all. But Biden actually, as a candidate, promised to veto it, even if it got through uh, Congress, even if it was passed miraculously by the House and Senate, he would veto it. Uh, we There are progressive forces or liberal, more liberal or social democratic forces inside the Democratic Party, like the squad, like AOC. They are for Medicare for all. Bernie Sanders is for Medicare for all. But again, will it come up even uh, as an item for discussion, much less debate or decision? Uh, Jimmy Dore tried to, uh, using sort of a, a tactic to generate controversy, was trying to find a way to insist that the liberal wing of the Democratic Party uh, force Nancy Pelosi to bring Medicare for all to as a vote to the House. And it created such a weird, like huge scandal as if something terrible had happened, like the sky had fallen in. Uh, but anyway, let's talk a little bit about that issue, Medicare for all and the failure again by the Democratic Party establishment uh, to do that which is absolutely necessary and absolutely achievable. Yeah, I mean, one of the strange things about this is when you think about the silence of Biden and Harris uh, during this whole controversy. I mean, if they're the new leaders of the party, and you know, this could be tied up in into their reticence because of the Georgia primary happening and they don't want to say those forbidden words, Medicare for all. But when you really think about the fact that they are not out there, you know, kind of cheerleading for the American people. It's a real, it's a real disgrace, actually. As you mentioned, there's a movement among progressives to force Democrats in, in Congress to vote on Medicare for all. And we are in the middle of a pandemic, right? And so this movement has been, I guess, cheerleaded by show host Jimmy Dore. And he, I saw over the weekend that he even picked up support from author and activist Cornell West. And what he's been basically saying is that uh, progressives like the squad, uh, the progressive, you know, real progressive members of the Progressive Caucus need to threaten to with- withhold their votes to Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House because uh, they have enough votes to basically deny her the speakership unless she brings to the floor an up and down, up and down vote on Medicare for all. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a strategy to, to, to make the establishment Democrats either support healthcare for people in the middle of a pandemic or not, because there's no other options on the table. There are no other solutions being proposed by anyone. It's just like out there normalized, like people are supposed to be out of work, you know, out of their healthcare plans out of a situation where they can access healthcare while we have this health crisis. 
So it's created this uh, big controversy in the so-called you know, progressive wing of the Democratic Party because uh, there are people who believe that you know Jimmy Dore is uh, he's out of his lane. That that the progressives know when it is the right time to bring this proposal to the floor. People like AOC are saying this is not the right time. This is not the right strategy. But they're not uh, listening to the the people that are listening to the needs of the people because people need health care now and this is a way of forcing uh members of congress elected lawmakers to address what is a serious crisis right now i want i want to play a clip of brianna joy gray who was the the head of bernie sanders communications in the 2020 race because um you know there's another element to this that all of this you know, maneuvering in Congress is kind of irrelevant. Like the point here uh, that she's making is that, you know, the the organiz- the organizing has to happen on the ground, and this could be a spark to get that to happen. So let's uh, let's listen to this clip. To my point, it's not the point of the plan. I mean, obviously, it'd be lovely if it passed, but part of it is about exposing people for who they are. And I think that none of this conversation is weighted enough toward the organizing spark that this could serve as to work to do this not alone in a vacuum but in conjunction with labor in conjunction with activists in conjunction with the millions of people who were mobilized in the street this summer about with the black lives matter movement which by the way includes as one of its principles as one of its objectives universal health care the issue ultimately walter is how does a reform like Medicare for All, how does it finally get won? I mean, at a certain point in American history, that would be up until 1935, in fact, workers, when they lost their jobs, when they were laid off, uh, either because of a recession or a company went out of business through no fault of their own, uh, they just had no income. And as a consequence, hunger and starvation and death from both uh, was a real thing. The The slogan of the Communist Party in 1933, where there were mass demonstrations of the unemployed, the slogan on the banners was, fight, don't starve. And that wasn't a rhetorical flourish. That was literally what was happening. 5,000 people in America were announced to have died from starvation that year. Probably the number was great, a great uh, deal larger. Uh, here we have uh, you know, the, the government finally, you know, sort of responded, but again, not because the Democratic Party had like, uh, you know, an epiphany. It wasn't like the Democratic politicians woke up and thought, wow, why don't we finally give the starving some food? That's not what happened. What happened is that there was mass movements of the unemployed, mass movements of labor. There was the general strike in Toledo, Ohio, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and San Francisco, California, all in 1934. There were factory seizures, the sit-down strikes. There was the growth of a large communist and socialist movement. And then suddenly the same Congress that said, no, we're not going to give unemployment insurance said, yeah, uh, let's give unemployment insurance. And now Americans, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, independent, socialist, liberal, conservative, you name it, people understand unemployment insurance, the way they understand Medicare to be a right. And if anybody were to come and say, we're going to take away unemployment insurance, or we're going to eliminate Medicare, uh, 
the workers and the population, regardless of ideology, would fight tooth and nail to defend these rights, even though at the time that they were being fought for, they were considered part of a communist agenda and cons- and demonized by the media. How how will Medicare for all be won? I mean, those are extremely important historical points you make there, and I think the same basic framework as how any set of rights are won, any set of rights are asserted by the people through mass struggle. And that can take a number of different forms, a number of different tactics. Um, as you mentioned, in 1934, there was the the West Coast Longshore Workers Strike, you know, uh, auto workers strikes, Teamsters strikes, 1936, the Flint sit-down strike. You know, of course, people also carry out mass demonstrations. They do acts of civil disobedience. I mean, there are all sorts of tools in the kit of people's struggle that have proven to win over the years. I mean, to take a more contemporary example, uh, the struggle to win DACA, um, temporary legal status for people who, uh, undocumented people who came to the United States when they were minors. Um, You know, the Obama administration was carrying out enormous levels of deportation. I mean, record numbers of deportations. They were not a pro-immigrant administration. But what undocumented young people started doing in 2011 and 2012 is that they started having sit-ins courageously. I mean, these are undocumented people, right? Courageously having sit-ins, acts of civil disobedience at Obama campaign headquarters throughout the country. Um, That placed an enormous amount of pressure on the administration at a highly politically sensitive time. And so this this deeply anti-immigrant administration uh, issued an executive order creating the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, Medicare for All is something that resonates with the overwhelming majority of the population. Um, There are all sorts of ideologies and, and political tricks out there to try to convince um, you know, more conservative working people that it's actually against their interests. But it's it's not easy. I mean, it's not difficult to demolish those myths if people and organizations and institutions stand up clearly and boldly for what they believe and what's needed. Um, I mean, there are so many different things that uh, the the people need to get out of this unbelievable crisis that we're in right now because of the coronavirus because of the resulting economic crisis, and just because of the general trend of exploding inequality in society. Medicare for All is absolutely one of them. The cancellation of student loan debt is another one of them. A guarantee for uh, housing, housing as a right to put a stop to the wave of gentrification devastating cities across the country. All of these things can be won if the people in power legitimately fear for the continuation of that power that they hold. Yeah, I think that I think that is the key. Uh, I want to play. We have two audio clips. If we have time to get to them, one is Bernie Sanders speaking on the floor of the Senate about uh, hunger, jobs, and eviction, and and the second Esther is about the the disproportionate impact of this economic devastation on Black and Native and Latino families. I want to start by playing that clip. It's very short. But again, we have a situation where the U.S. working class, the multinational, multiracial working class is in crisis. Black, Latino, Arab, indigenous, white people, Asian Americans, you name it. I mean, if you're a worker and you're not rich, if you're not part of the upper 20 percent, you're probably in crisis right now. Eighty six million people make uh, which which makes up 50 percent of the employed workforce, 86 million make less than $35,000 a year. 
And if you're telling me, if anyone's telling us that that's not really poverty wages, you know, they have to be just joking. I mean, a cruel joke because that's poverty. And the Poor People's Campaign estimates that, uh, that you know, a huge part of the population, 50% is living in or near poverty. But let's, I want to play this clip from Bernie Sanders uh, about the disproportionality of how this is impacting uh, black and Latino and native families. And then I want to get your response, Esther. Nearly 60% of Latino families and 55% of African-American families and many, many, many Native American families have either experienced a job loss or a pay cut. Yeah, Brian, and I, I believe that what Bernie Sanders is describing really highlights the fact that you don't hear these statistics in corporate media and the fact that they're the poor, the working poor uh, exist in this country and we existed before the pandemic. So the pandemic has only worsened things. And, you know, this goes in line with what we were talking about in previous shows about the growing army of the homeless, that you can work 40 hours a week at minimum wage or close to minimum wage in this country and still be poor and not even be able to afford a home. So, so what he's talking about may be news to some people, but it's not news to, you know, those of us like, like living, you know, real life here in this country. Yeah, you're right. Just not in the media that much, but for for the masses of people, the large tens of millions of people who are experiencing this reality, you don't need to turn on the TV. You don't need to hear speeches on the Senate floor to know the truth. Uh, again, uh, very important. We're going to continue talking about the budget, the stimulus package, and the state of the working class with Richard Wolf in our segment tomorrow. But Walter, I want to move on to another story. Uh, you know, the issue of war and peace, always a big topic here on the socialist program and a big issue for the country, especially given the track record of the United States, uh, intervening, occupying, invading, bombing country after country, especially in the Middle East. Uh, President Obama uh, entered into negotiations during the Obama, second Obama administration with Iran. They signed along with five other countries, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear arms deal, uh, which was never fully implemented by the U.S., which the quid pro quo was Iran uh, have intrusive weapons inspectors come into their nuclear facilities such that they can verify that Iran does not have a nuclear bomb, is not building it, that its enriched uranium is closely monitored. Iran did everything and then the Trump administration came in and ripped the agreement up, said it was the worst deal in the in the history of deals, and also imposed crippling, punishing economic sanctions that really hurt uh, poor people and working class people. And of course, even the middle class in Iran, the sanctions are very, very severe, uh, a kind of economic strangulation. But the big question is, what will the Biden administration do? Will it go back to Obama's stance and return the United States to the JCPOA. Uh, Iran's president, Rouhani, and Iran's supreme leader predicted that Biden will, in fact, return to the JCPOA. Let's just talk about the issue real quick. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty significant development. So uh, Iran, in the Iranian system of government, there's a split executive, there's a supreme leader, which is elected by a body called the Assembly of Experts. And then there's a president, which is popularly elected by the Iranian people. Um, and, you know, it's not uncommon for there to be tactical differences between these two figures. And on the issue of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, there there had been uh, substantial differences between these two offices, these two individual executive leaders. Uh, Rouhani uh, was sort of the chief architect of the deal. His administration signed it in the first place, initiated it. Uh, and then the uh, office of the Supreme Leader and other political factions at Iran essentially have taken the position since the very beginning of the public negotiations of this deal that you can't trust the United States. You can make a deal with them one day, but then the next day they'll stab you in the back. And and what the Trump administration did was es- essentially confirm that position. So it's a big question. Like, will, I mean, of course, as you put it, will the Biden administration want to uh, re-enter, have the United States re-enter the JCPOA? Uh, and will Iran accept that, considering that their end of the bargain, the benefit that they were supposed to receive from the deal has been completely denied to them? And that's sanctions relief, relief from the economic warfare that's being waged on their country, causing all sorts of hardship and shortages and, and uh, you know, very serious economic dislocation. So the... Um, the Supreme Leader and the President Rouhani both made comments in the last few days indicating that they would be willing to re-enter the JCPOA, even though the Trump administration uh, essentially destroyed the deal, trashed the deal. Um, but that still leaves an open question. Uh, will the Biden administration attempt to attach additional provisions to the deal? For instance, one specific thing that's spoken about or discussed or considered frequently um, is, well, as a condition of the United States re-entering the JCPOA, will it demand that Iran stop testing ballistic missiles or accept uh, limitations to its development of conventional ballistic missiles for its armed forces. That's something that would likely be considered completely unacceptable to Iran. Iran's position is, look, we negotiated this deal. That's the deal. If you want to re-enter it, fine. Um, but forces in the Biden administration that might want to pursue an even harder line towards Iran could try to insert these poison pills, like the provision about the potential provision about ballistic missiles. So it's still very much up in the air. But yeah, I think an important indicator, these these comments favorable to Iran reentering the JCPOA from both the office of the presidency and the supreme leader. Uh, on our Thursday shows, we talk about issues and we do a deep dive. We had Mohammed Morandi, Professor uh, from Tehran on talking about what what he expects with U.S.-Iran relations. People can go back to um, our Twitter or Facebook page or Instagram to, to listen to that story. Uh, it's a really important story, and Mohammed Morandi is an expert. We're going to keep following U.S.-Iran relations, uh, very pivotal to the Middle East. We're going to do another deep dive on that. Before we uh, move on back to a couple other domestic stories, I do want to also mention, for those who are thinking about the big issues of war and peace, the Pentagon, as as we all know, has uh, evolved a new uh, and announced a new doctrine, major power conflict is the top priority for the Pentagon. That means the U.S. is preparing for World War III. Yes, it's preparing to go to war with Russia and more importantly with China because the U.S. is identifying China as the great foe. And I just have to say, um, 
to all of you before we do move on to the d- domestic stories. I saw a fascinating article in the Associated Press this morning. Here it is. Russian and Chinese bombers fly joint patrol over Pacific. Russian and Chinese bombers flew a joint patrol mission over the Western Pacific Tuesday in a show of increasingly close military ties between Moscow and Beijing. The Russian Defense Ministry said in a statement that the joint mission was intended to, quote, develop and deepen the comprehensive Russia-China partnership, further increase the level of cooperations between the two militaries, expand their ability for joint action, and strengthen strategic stability, close quote. Uh, Of course, in 1950, that would be 70 years ago, uh, and the year after the Chinese Revolution, Chairman Mao Zedong went to Moscow. We met with Stalin. After long negotiations, they formed a Chinese-Soviet friendship agreement where they were military allies. And uh, as a consequence, the relationship of forces in world politics shifted. That's Two-fifths of the world population were in socialist countries, and those socialist countries decided that they would stand together against imperialism. The breakup of that alliance in the Sino-Soviet conflict and and split in the 1960s and 70s changed the equation, changed the relationship of forces, allowed ultimately the U.S. to get back in the driver's seat. The fact that these two countries, even though Russia is no longer led by a communist party, uh, the fact that these two countries, in pursuit of national interest, not necessarily ideological identity, not because they're pursuing a communist agenda, but for national interests, have decided to build what might be the beginning of a military alliance to respond to U.S. major power conflict, that will be a game changer in world politics. Uh, anyway, we'll keep following that story, and we'll, we're going to do a, a, a show or two just on Russia-Chinese relations. But before we close, Esther, I want to go back to a domestic story. It's a, it's a D.C. story, but not only D.C. It's, it speaks so much, and it's gotten so little press, and I just think we have to talk about it. An FBI agent, when he was on the subway, or what we call the metro here in Washington, D.C., the F, the, an FBI agent got in an argument with somebody and shot and killed that person, And then the FBI, the transit police, the D.C. Metro uh, Police, and other police agencies won't talk about who it was. Nobody's arrested. FBI agents shoot somebody dead in the subway because they're in an argument and no details. Let's talk about what happened and why is it that the FBI agents are empowered to shoot and kill people in public transit and the media and the agencies say nothing? Well, Brian, you're right. And uh, when I heard about this particular incident, you know, this shooting, you know, it reminded me about how these incidents normalize terror. I mean, because that's what terrorism terrorism is, right? Uh, Violence that seems to be random, that can come out of the blue at any time and place. And police are not releasing any information about this incident that was, you know, very terrifying for the Metro riders, but this follows a pattern. So, you know, on, in June of this year, members of the secret service crashed their cruiser into the car, uh, occupied by two young African-American mothers riding with their infants. And this was down on the national mall. 
And these two women, uh, India Johnson, she's 26, Yasmin Winston, she's 25 uh, at the time. Uh, so a uniformed Secret Service officer, uh, these people uh, crashed their car into this family's car, then pointed rifles at their heads, telling them to get out of the car. Um, more officers surrounded the car. Uh, they, uh, the kids are screaming and, uh, they handcuffed the mothers, uh, didn't tell them what this was all about. And, uh, there were even reports by bystanders that the, their car was searched illegally while they were held away from their infants. And they were never, uh, told while they, while, why this happened, uh, they were never given any any reasons. They were saying something about they thought the car was stolen, but you know they showed their uh, owner's documents for the car that she hadn't reported her car stolen. So this was a uh, another act of terror, you know. And it just reminds me of the fact that here in D.C., not only do we have our local metropolitan police department that we call MPD, but we have about more than two dozen police departments or uh, agencies operating here. And so just like this person was shot by the FBI, uh, you can be, um, you know, stopped or, or assaulted or shot by many of these uh, police agencies, like the Transit Police, the Capitol Hill Police. And there is still an un unsolved issue of a, a young man from 2017 being shot, shot by the park police and his family had to find out that he was shot while they were sitting in a hospital waiting room and looking at a television. And it took two years for the FBI, which looked at that case to, to, to even say anything about this killing of Bijan Geyser. And, uh, the, the family had to basically, uh, file suit to, um, file a freedom of information act to get information about their, um, their son, uh, being killed. And so this person was not just, uh, Mr. Geyser was not even just shot. He was killed. And, uh, the FBI took two years to even say anything about it. And it, there's still no resolution. There's still no knowledge about who shot him, why. And so this is, this is terror. You know, when you say people say stop police terror, that's what they mean. And it also goes back to the same, you know, national uprising about defunding the police because we should not have to pay our tax dollars to, be assaulted, be killed by police and have no transparency at all, uh, especially when it involves the FBI. We're going to uh, talk about that. And we're going to talk about the fact that the cops and the Proud Boys who are working hand in hand to attack black people here in Washington, D.C. in recent weeks. They're coming back on January 6th for what Donald Trump says will be a wild demonstration uh, clearly indicating that he's egging on fascist forces. Again, the police treated them with kid gloves. We'll talk about that next Tuesday uh, in this uh, edition of the socialist program called In the News. Tomorrow, join us on Wednesday for our regular scheduled program with Richard Wolf, economist. Uh, this Thursday, we won't be bringing you a show. It's Christmas Eve. We're going to take a break on Thursday but the following Thursday, we'll be back with an amazing interview with author and scholar Gerald Horn about professional sports and racism and capitalism. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.